This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. The Florida Keys, a famous destination for snorkelers and divers, are home to the continental U.S.'s only living coral barrier reef. Unfortunately, since about 2014, the Florida reef tract has been in crisis with numerous species of corals dying from stony coral tissue loss disease, the cause of which is currently unknown. My guest today, Carrie O'Neill, Senior Coral Scientist at the Florida Aquarium's Center for Conservation in Palo Beach, Florida, has been studying captive and wild corals for many years. Join us as Carrie describes her work at the Florida Aquarium and the work of hundreds of collaborators who are trying to stop this devastating coral crisis. We'll be right back after these messages. Does your dog itch, scratch, stink, or shed like crazy? Come to Dynavite for help. Order a 90-day supply of Dynavite. Dynavite is nutrition. Pick up two bottles of Lycochops. Get the third bottle free. New improved Lycochops with omega-3, omega-6, vitamin E. And now, six extra direct-fed microbials. Even better for the digestive tract and immune system. Try Lycochops. Buy two, get one free. At Dynavite.com. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Carrie O'Neill, Senior Coral Scientist at the Florida Aquarium Center for Conservation in Apollo Beach. Thanks for joining us, Carrie. Thanks for having me, Roy. Really happy to be here to talk to everyone. Well, I know you are such a busy person and... And I, just kind of going over your bio, you've, you've got so much experience, I kind of want to explore that a little bit um, and ask some kind of personal questions, nothing too personal. Um, <laughs> so how did you first become interested in corals, and did you have aquariums when you were growing up? Sure. I guess my first interest in corals was actually just on summer vacations. My parents used to bring us to Fort Lauderdale every year to visit some family. And I remember just swimming off of the beach there. And actually, at that time, I could still find corals from the beach off of Fort Lauderdale, pretty close to shore. And I I just remember thinking, like, what are these odd brain-shaped things that I'm seeing? And and started to learn about them. And I think I I got my first little book on corals when I was probably 10 or 12 years old. And I, I always remember wanting to have an aquarium when I was a kid. And I think I had, you know, like a goldfish and... And, you know, just really simple things. And and but what I hated about it was that I never wanted anything to die. Um, I like a really introverted and passionate person. And I I just always couldn't stand the thought of something like under my care, not being happy and healthy. And I I gave up on the aquarium thing until really in college and, and coming back to it. Uh, so yeah, I, I had aquarium, uh, very bad aquariums <laughs> when I was really little, um, but I, I just always wanted them to have the best care possible, and I, I didn't take it up again until I knew I could do that. Oh, understandable, and yeah, I definitely had some bad experiences with fish when I was growing up, so don't feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> 
So you attended University of Maryland and actually studied coral. So how did, I guess, how did that work? Obviously, you're not kind of in coral territory, but how how did you kind of manage that? Yeah, so I I grew up in Maryland and grew up going to National Aquarium in Baltimore and, like I said, vacationing in Florida. So I knew I was really interested in corals and in coral reefs in general, and I had learned to scuba dive by that time. And I actually saw that there was a professor, Dr. Ken Siebens, at the University of Maryland that had done some coral research. So I decided to go to the University of Maryland, uh, mostly because it was in-state tuition um, and I actually mm-hmm. got a scholarship mm-hmm. but then I, I sought him out and basically was like I want to do something with coral I you know I, I don't really care what it is I just I didn't know what really what I wanted as an undergraduate I just knew I wanted to work in coral reefs and he kind of said to me well I have this project that maybe you could help with and and it was literally just counting copepods and zooplankton that had been collected from a coral reef, but really had very little to directly do with actually getting to work with corals. But the really cool part of the project I I now realize was this was totally looking at coral nutrition and the availability of zooplankton for corals to feed on. And I did get to go on a trip Mm. to the Keys and actually see where these samples had been collected. So I, I that was my first introduction into the real world of science where, you know, you want to do something glamorous and work with coral reefs and then you get put behind a microscope for three years. I mean, I actually did my undergraduate honors thesis on zooplankton abundance over a coral reef. So I was getting there, but I wasn't quite there yet. <laughs> oh, no, that's great, though. Obviously, all important. So, so how did you end up at the National Aquarium then in Baltimore? Yeah. So I I grew up, you know, going to the aquarium on school trips and I just thought it would be a great place to do an internship when I was in doing my undergraduate. So it's funny, I actually started as um, an intern in the in the dolphin training or in the um, mammal training department. So, you know, I, I guess I still had that kid dream of being a dolphin trainer, although it's tough to admit now people will probably make fun of me. Yeah, uh, I am. No, I won't. No, I won't do that. I'll wait till yeah, later. Yeah, you will. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I had I still wanted to see what this dolphin training thing was all about so I did one semester internship there and I actually I love that I love the psychology of it and and animal behavior and I still pretend I'm a great trainer when I'm working with my dogs Uh, (laughs) but you know I I still was really fascinated with fish and corals and everything to do with coral reefs so the next semester I actually went and did an internship with the fishes and invertebrates department and that's where I really got to start getting my hands on on corals and I had fantastic mentors at that facility that really took me under their wing and taught me what they know about corals and aquarium husbandry and I decided that's what I wanted to do and I I just pushed forward to you know get a summer temporary position and then a a one-year temporary position and until I finally worked my way up to working in the water chemistry lab and then also in husbandry and I was there for really all in all from internships and volunteering and working full-time, I was there for almost 12 years. So that was a significant chunk of my career. Wow, that's so... I will have to say, though, that the corals actually stay put when you tell them to. So you do your training did come in Thank really you. handy on the dolphin side. So that's yeah. good. It's me. I trained them all to do that. I did. Yeah. 
<laughs> Although sometimes I actually now wish I could train them to get up and move. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. To the, closer to the light, exactly. So what, what made you decide to leave the, the uh, National Aquarium and then pursue your master's at NOVA? Yeah, so I, I had that early experience in undergraduate doing doing research and writing a thesis. And I just really enjoy experimenting with things in a controlled fashion. So I'm, I'm a really detail-oriented person and I love keeping aquariums. But there's always these mysteries about it, you know, that you say it's kind of more of an art than a science. And my brain doesn't like to accept that. So I, I like to know the why uh, behind everything. And I, I really just wanted to further that part of working with aquariums. And I wanted to be able to really dial in some of these husbandry things that we were doing. And I, and I had the opportunity to go work on a project for my master's that was, you know, what I thought really one of a kind, where I got to grow corals in an aquarium system at Nova Southeastern University, but then also use those corals to be put back out into the wild for a reef restoration project. And that was this, just the best of both worlds for me, is that I got to continue to tinker with aquariums, which I love, and also do some really good science at the same time. So I, I jumped on that opportunity and, and moved to Florida and was at Nova Southeastern for about four years. So what would you say your two biggest lessons doing that project were? Working for a university is a lot more difficult than working for a public aquarium. You know, the, being a graduate student and having to really get your own funding and, and fight for every part of your project is very different. And I learned how to make it work. You know, I, I learned that you don't always have the best equipment and you don't always have um, all the resources available to you and that sometimes you just have to really dig deep and make it work and figure it out. And I think that is just a huge lesson that a lot of graduate students end up having to learn. And, and that's really what graduate school is all about, is figuring out how to make something out of what sometimes can be very little. And really, that was where I really got in touch with what was happening in Florida. So that was a big lesson for me, was being living in Florida, diving in Florida very frequently, monitoring corals, and seeing what was really going on. Because I don't think it's really clear, you know, as sad as that is, that the national media that our reefs are in trouble and they were in trouble at that time as well and and we're desperately trying to fragment coral and propagate coral and and put some back out on the reef and and then my project was really disheartening because it was a great introduction to being a coral restoration scientist because my I actually monitored them for five years so even after I graduated and and I was just still working down there I'd pop back in and see how they were doing and, you know, through year four, they were amazing. And then year five was, uh, I think, Hurricane Michael or one of those. And I went back on year five and they were just pretty much gone. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, so it's it's the harsh reality of coral restoration. And now, mind you, I was working with staghorn coral and that that's what it does it grows it gets to a big enough size and a storm comes and breaks it and spreads it all over and then it hopefully solidifies and grows again um 
but so you know that was a harsh reality for me that you can spend you know upwards of eight years of my life at that point working on this and then one hurricane could come through and just wipe it all away so that made me really think about you know refrustration from a different perspective and what maybe other paths could be followed to try to make that more effective so after all that and a little bit of heartache at the end but obviously a great lesson how, how did you end up getting your current job at the Florida Aquarium? Sure. So I, I had seen some job postings come up here and there about this Florida Aquarium Center for Conservation. And I had heard through Grapevine of what it's this was all about, that they wanted to grow coral um, for restoration and that they were building this facility, you know, outside of the main public aquarium. And it would all be focused on conservation and research work. And this was really intriguing to me because I was I was working actually in environmental consulting by that point. And I was doing lots of diving and lots of um, monitoring and monitoring coral disease and, and just doing a lot of field work. And I missed taking care of aquariums. I love taking care of aquariums. It's like absolutely one of my favorite things to do in the world. So I really missed that. And I, I kept hearing about this place. And then and finally, I saw a job posting that I was like, okay, you know what, I'm going to go for this one. It's just really this facility drew me in because I can bring those two worlds together. This, our Center for Conservation here in Apollo Beach, Florida, so about half an hour south of Tampa, is really unique in that the Florida Aquarium has really taken um, conservation work to a whole new level and put a significant investment into this site, both financially and with really any resource they can, as well as the state and federal agencies to really try to grow coral on land and do it in a way that is going to be very beneficial for Florida coral reefs. And that was right up my alley. So I came out here and I've been here since the middle of 2016. So yeah, just about three years now. So before we take a break and then really talk about the disease outbreak, can you give us maybe a a little bit of background on currently uh, the facilities there, you know, maybe a little bit of, you know, past current and, and uh, we'll talk about future stuff later, but past and current coral sure. work. Yeah. So we started really just working on coral spawning work at the Florida Aquarium. Um, the Florida Aquarium has been working on coral spawning for upwards of almost 10 years in some way, shape or form. Um, and actually some coral conservation and coastal construction projects really early on. So the Florida Aquarium has been working on coral for a while, but here at the Center for Conservation, they've actually built now two 1,500-square-foot greenhouses that entirely hold coral native to Florida um, and the Florida Reef Tract, which is really unique. And then there's also a sea turtle rehabilitation center here at the Center for Conservation and some additional research space where we're researching the long-spined sea urchin for restoration as well. So lots of really relevant conservation work for Florida happening here in Apollo Beach. So let's go ahead and then we'll take a quick break and get into a little bit more of all the disease issues and the work you're doing there. And so uh, let's take a, a quick break and hear from our sponsors. Hair, hair, 
How do you manage your cat's hair, hairballs, and dander when they're not really fond of bathing? The answer is just a whisker away with catnip bath wipes from Whitegate. It's the only cat wipe on the market that's infused with natural catnip oil. Catnip bath wipes will leave your cat happy, calm, and playful, and you'll both look forward to bath time. Go to whitegateinc.com, that's W-H-Y-T-E-G-A-T-E-I-N-C.com, and enter the code CATNIP for 15% off site-wide, plus free shipping. That's right, 15% off. We're not kidding. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Pet We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Carrie O'Neill, Senior Coral Scientist at the Florida Aquarium Center for Conservation. So, Carrie, thanks so much for all that kind of intro information, a little bit about yourself and about the Center for Conservation, all the great work going on there at the Florida Aquarium. Let's talk about the uh, kind of the, the sort of sad thing now, the uh, disease outbreak, the current disease outbreak in the Keys. Can you give us a little bit of background? Yeah, sure. So, you know, when I first started here at the Florida Aquarium, we were really focused on breeding corals and spawning corals from the wild. Um, And then we were presented with a unique project that there was a disease happening. At this time, we didn't even know what to call it um, on the Florida reef tract, and it appeared to be spreading. So this disease was first found in late 2014, um, and, and this was off the coast of Miami, and then started to spread north and south from there along the coast of Florida. And by the time we got involved in 2016, it was in the in the Upper Keys area of the Florida Reef Tract. And this disease just literally causes the tissue to fall right off of the coral. And it is now called stony coral tissue loss disease is the name that it's been given. And a lot of times, you know, Florida's had a lot of coral diseases in the past and they tend to be bad for a year or two and then they sort of go away um, and then maybe they'll have a little outbreak again here or there. There's always some background levels. But this disease is, is unprecedented in that it affects at least 25, if not more, species of coral and can have just devastating effects on, on individual reefs. I mean, you can have the loss of 90% or more of some species on certain reefs. And, and the data is still sort of being collected on the long-term impacts and the numbers. But the diving on a reef before and after this disease has gone through, it has a devastating ecological scale impact in that it is killing just corals that are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years old, and it it kills them in a matter of a few weeks or or a month or two. And literally the tissue just recedes and falls right off the the skeleton. Um, And it appears to spread down the reef tract. And unfortunately, as of now in 2019, this disease has spread all the way down to the Lower Keys and Key West, and it, it is working its way out into the Marquesas, and we hope it doesn't cross into the dry tortugas, but it's every indication is that it, it's going to keep spreading. So we were asked to first get involved in rescuing a species of coral called pillar coral, and 
that species was already kind of rare in Florida to begin with. It's a beautiful species that just forms these big columns that go up into the water. And it, it has really big fleshy polyps, so it looks like it's sort of swaying in the breeze. It's, it's a really beautiful coral. So we were asked to start taking fragments of that coral along with partners in Nova Southeastern University and Keys Marine Lab who were collecting them and start housing them along with um, NOAA's disease lab in Charleston, South Carolina, and start looking at how we could maybe start a genetic archive for these corals, but also learn how to treat this disease. And, you know, could we collect corals that were actually sick and bring them in and treat them and stabilize them so that we could save that piece of um, genetic material to potentially breed it again one day. So this project was something I had no idea was going to happen. And it has opened the door into everything that we are involved in currently. Um, This first pillar coral rescue project and, and what do we do and how do we save them and how do we treat them was the main focus of my work for a year or two. And it's been it's been eye opening. Never did I think that I'd be working with federal and state agencies to take corals out of the reef, um, especially in Florida, and try to save them in a tank, and not even necessarily knowing at what point those corals are going to be able to go back into our ocean. So let me ask you a couple quick follow-ups, you know, before, and I definitely want you to kind of talk a little bit about a lot of the different groups working on this. So which which kind of corals are affected by this disease? Sure. So there's a lot more than just the pillar coral. So this all started with the pillar coral, but there are over 25 species affected. So you're looking at pretty much all of the massive boulder coral species, primary reef building species. Ironically, the species that are not affected are the acroporid corals or um, like the staghorn and the elkhorn coral. Those are ones that had a major disease problem back in the 90s, but now they're actually not getting the disease. So that is a saving grace that those two species that we have in Florida seem to not be affected by this disease, which in itself is very interesting. But almost every other species on the reef gets this stuff and some get it worse than others. Some seem to be a bit more resistant, and some species are just almost completely wiped out from an area. So this is really, um, this is the whole reef ecosystem that's going to be affected by this. You know, it's not just one or two species. So again, I know there's a lot of people and organizations involved. Can you give the our listeners maybe an idea of how big yeah. this this uh, collaboration is? Yeah, well, we only have, what, 30 or 40 minutes. So I apologize in advance to people that don't get listed specifically. So it takes an army. So in beyond this pillar coral rescue, we have now partnered with Florida FWC, Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the National Marine fisheries service office there as well as universities so you got nova southeastern university of florida usf university of miami of course the florida department of environmental protection and then you have a lot of nonprofits and ngos uh, like coral restoration foundation for example so this is now this has turned into a much bigger rescue project um, and now it's just called the florida reef track to rescue project um, and 
coral rescue team. So we're actually attempting to take 22 of the most heavily affected species and get 200 of those individuals into land-based aquarium facilities. And that's a pretty massive undertaking. So you've got 4,400 corals that need to find homes on land and then be propagated and used for breeding and restoration in the future. So no one facility was ready to just say, yep, I'll take them. You know, that's a lot of corals. And we're talking about corals that are maybe a foot in diameter. So... This is being led really by FWC and NOAA, as well as we've now involved the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, so that's AZA. And what AZA is, is um, an organization that sort of accredits different zoos and aquarias across the country and the world. And they accredit facilities that have really high standards of animal care. Um, It's actually extremely challenging to become an AZA-accredited zoo or aquarium because they really do have the best standards in the world for animal care. Now, the Florida Aquarium is an AZA-accredited facility, but we knew going into this coral rescue that if we go to AZA facilities, that those facilities are going to be the ones that are going to take on this project, take it very seriously, and also ensure that these corals are given the highest standards of care that an animal can be given. And that's what the agencies wanted working with these corals. This is a precious natural resource, and this is really potentially the genetic future of the Florida Reef Tract. So, It's taken many different agencies, but when you look at the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, we have, uh, you know, more than one dozen at this point that have already received corals for holding and more just lining up by the day to take on more corals. And then we have some other private institutions that are maybe taking corals. So it's taking an army to do this, but it is really just an unprecedented level of collaboration. And like I said, there's so many partners, you cannot name them all on a podcast. You did a great job trying to start. So I appreciate (laughs) that. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, like you mentioned, there are definitely lots and lots out there. So maybe can you sort of break down the different, I guess, I don't want to say roles, but maybe the different pieces to this disease issue and, and how people are kind of trying to attack those different pieces. Sure. So beyond just the coral rescue team, there's a variety of response teams working on this disease. And so you have your scientific research response team, and that's looking more at the microbial community of the coral, trying to identify the pathogen that may be responsible for this. Um, And a lot of research going into that part of this disease, as well as how it spreads. So looking at water flow models of how this disease might have spread from Miami and how it traveled throughout the the reef track. And then you have the interventions team. So actually getting out there and attempting to treat corals in the field, which is a project that we were involved in also in the early stages, was trying to develop a treatment for this disease. And then we'll be forming the restoration and propagation team, hopefully here pretty soon, that, you know, now we'll look at what do we do to help the Florida Reef Track get back on its feet and get back to being the healthy reef that some of us remember. 
So that was definitely a kind of really interesting part of this, the, the uh, infield treatments. Can you maybe give a little bit of a flavor of what's involved with trying to treat a coral in the Keys? Sure. So, you know, it, corals are animals, first of all, for anybody that doesn't know, this is important. So corals are animals and you can give them medical care just as you would your cat or dog or fish or anything that you might take care of. It's not very often done because our understanding of of treatment of corals is still very limited. Um, Although I feel like the aquarium field is more ahead of that than the scientific world for sure because we do things like dip our corals. Um, On arrival, we try to treat them for pests. So we have a little bit of understanding of this. So we actually paired up with, again, uh, NOAA and NSU and Keys Marine Lab to try to treat those pillar corals. And NOAA had come up with a modified dental paste with a compounding pharmacy uh, called Plantation Pharmacy. And they actually take just a regular antibiotic amoxicillin and mix it in with this compounded dental paste. And you have to pull the coral out of the water to get this stuff to adhere to the skeleton right by the lesion. So that was great in an aquarium. Like this stuff worked fantastic. As long as you caught it early, then you could just nip this disease right in the bud with the pillar coral and stabilize the individual. And many of those corals or most of those corals are still alive here today at the Florida Aquarium. But trying to do, everybody was like, wow, that's amazing. We should do it in the ocean. And that's a totally different ball game right so now you have you're trying to apply it underwater by a scuba diver you have waves you just a totally different situation so I, I put out some feelers and actually got a response from a local pharmaceutical manufacturer named CoraRx. And these guys are amazing. And they helped us formulate an adhesive compound that you could mix in this, this amoxicillin and in divers could apply it underwater and it would actually stick to corals. So that was has is still in field trials actually. It's a, it's a lot more complicated than the ocean also because you can apply this and it, it stops the one lesion. But in the ocean we still have a source of pathogens, right? So you've got plankton still flying around and you maybe got a loose piece of tissue from the coral down the way that floats over and reinfects a coral. We can avoid that in aquarium because we have amazing filtration and we're doing water changes and we're giving them all these fantastic conditions but in the ocean um, it's just a bit of a different story but this is really the first time that we've followed a, a clinical path with corals of trying to treat a disease um, in the way that you would treat disease in other organisms so it was just a really interesting project to be part of and I hope that we can see more of that type of work in the future. And definitely, um, you know, getting, uh, obviously making sure the regulations working with the FDA drug yeah. folks, all that was, was critical. I know to yeah. the work you guys did now, um, maybe I'll even mention, I, I know that there were some, um, ex-military that helped with this too, right? Yeah. So, you know, it, ta- like I said, takes an army. So 
when you start thinking about this, like go out on the reef tract and start applying a medication to corals, that is a massive undertaking and no like one lab is going to be able to do that by themselves. So an ex-military group named Force Blue, they're a, they're a nonprofit and they take ex-military divers that are no longer um, deployed and, and really still want to have this mission, but a mission for conservation. And these guys, are fantastic underwater. They know how to organize themselves as a group. Um, They can take instructions and then just go out there and make it happen. And this group worked very closely with Dr. Karen Neely at Nova Southeastern to do over 5,000 corals, I think it was, that they were able to go out and do these experimental treatments. So, of course, they were trying different types of treatments, different applications, and seeing and monitoring effectiveness over time. So, that was really um, the first bigger experiment that was done with this treatment, and it was just great work. So, Carrie, it sounds like uh, you said it was Force Blue. Was that That's what they were called, right? Correct. Force Blue. Yeah, yeah Force Blue. Th- you know, big thanks to them, obviously, for their service for uh, the country as well as for all the work they're doing on conservation. So, million dollar question, a couple actually. One is, is this only in the Keys right now? Are we seeing it anywhere else, this disease? Yeah, so unfortunately, corals with similar signs um, have been documented elsewhere in the Caribbean now. So we have Belize and Mexico and um, Dominican Republic. Public. I, I'm not sure all of them. Unfortunately, it's constantly evolving. So, it's looked like it looks like maybe this thing has somehow jumped. Maybe ship ballast water or something has has jumped to other areas of the Caribbean. Unfortunately. So yeah, this is you know kind of sad. What what's your um? I guess do you have any uh, thoughts? Kind of big picture thoughts on um, how our corals are going to be doing in the next five ten years? Yeah, I think it's um. You know, it's hard being a coral biologist in the world right now, but if anything, this disease response has, in this disease itself, has just completely broken down the walls between management agencies and universities and researchers and nonprofits. And I actually think that we can come up with far more creative and innovative solutions now that it's unfortunate it had to get this bad but the things that are coming out now are are just amazing because of the urgency Um, never before would we have taken you know over 4,000 corals into aquariums and just focused on their health and how to keep them alive and hopefully breeding and propagating and, and spawning in aquariums So we're looking at trying to take these corals and induce them to spawn in aquariums so we can make thousands of more corals to be used or tens of thousands for restoration. So it's a double-edged sword, you know, that we're going to lose a lot of corals, but the innovation that's going to come out of this is, is unprecedented. That doesn't mean that the ocean is going to be any better in five years than it is now. So it's critical that we continue to focus on what's hurting our ocean in the first place. There's no point in restoring a reef that is still um, being affected by everything that is being affected by today. So we need to be looking at things like climate change. We need to be 
be looking at coastal pollution. We need to be looking at everything that is causing these diseases in the first place and cannot keep ignoring them. And this is around the world. It's not just Florida. However, Florida, especially being highly developed, is unfortunately going to be one of the worst off because we do have such a huge coastal pollution problem. So as final kind of words of wisdom, anything that you can tell our listeners to that they can try to do or help or watch out for? You know, it's always a difficult question. And I I always wonder what to say and um, because I don't like to say, you know, like, just don't litter or, you know, the problem is much bigger than that. But I honestly believe that the most important thing that a person can do is get out and vote. It is get out and vote for a candidate that supports a healthy environment. I'm not telling you to go with one party or the other. I'm just telling you to do your research and get out there and vote and make your voice heard. And make smart choices, smart like small choices that you make every day, whether it be, hey, don't use the really high nitrogen fertilizer on your yard. Use something organic that's slow release. Just think about the fact that everything that you do, every chemical you use ultimately ends up in our oceans and even those small things you know suggest it to your friends start the grapevine but really the absolute biggest thing you can do is get out and vote for people that support a healthy environment well thanks again very much Um, unfortunately we're out of time Carrie you as I know are so full of knowledge and really appreciate your uh, your sharing all that and all the work that you, you do for the corals and for the Florida Cram and for all everything we are kind of talking about today. So definitely thanks for that. Thank you, Roy, for having me. I know it can be a tough topic, um, but we're really trying everything that we can to do our best for the Florida Reef Track so that our children and their children can go out and scuba dive and enjoy the Florida Keys and, and eastern Florida just like we did as kids. Exactly. Thanks again, Carrie, and thanks to our producer, Mark Winter, for making this show possible. If you're ever near Tampa Bay, be sure to visit the Florida Aquarium. Definitely one of my favorite things to do if you haven't already, and uh, possibly, uh, you know, even their Center for Conservation, I'm not sure what their tourist situation is, but I'm sure they'll have something going at, at some point. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy, D-R-R-O-Y, at PetLifeRadio.com. Until then, have a great time with your aquaria. Definitely think about corals and what you can do to sort of help that situation and keep on keeping on with the hobby. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.